Hello and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here at your community radio station. We are Forward Radio, WFMP Louisville, broadcasting to you from here in the historic Havern Building at 106.5 FM. Or maybe you're listening to our live stream at forwardradio.org, or you might be listening to this program in the future on the podcast versions that we archive at forwardradio.org. Uh, what we do each week on Sustainability Now is bring in people from from usually around town, sometimes from around the country, around the world, uh, to have conversations about what is really needed for a more sustainable future that is already happening today if we seize it, right? And uh, I, sometimes I get the pleasure of talking to some authors, and I'm so delighted to have one joining me today from the D.C. area. I've got Alan Miller in the virtual studio with me. Welcome, Alan. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here, Justin. Yay! I'm so glad we connected finally uh, <laughs> about your your book that is, I guess, not super brand new. When did it come out? Uh, it was first released in April of last year. So. Oh, okay. It's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. It's been a year now, and I finally had my chance to read it. Uh, but it's a super important text called Cut Super Climate Pollutants Now, The Ozone Treaty's Urgent Lessons for Speeding Up Climate Action. Uh, it's part of a series called Resetting Our Future uh, that is been put out by uh, John Hunt Publishing and uh, Changemakers Books. And this book is co-authored. Uh, you want to tell me about your co-authors, Alan? Yeah, actually, they're both friends as well as uh, esteemed authorities. <laughs> Derwood Zelke, who was uh, incredibly enough my very first supervisor, Oh, really? When I was a law student, oh. and, and he was a year out of law school in 1973. I was a summer intern, and uh, we both had careers that took us in different paths and places, but we reconnected, and uh, he runs a non-governmental group uh, called uh, the Institute and Sustainable Development, affiliated with the University of California at Santa Barbara. Um, and he has become quite a leading expert working with the Biden administration on an issue we'll talk about, which is methane. And in addition to that, another former colleague of mine, also from the mid-70s, uh, Stephen O. Anderson. And Stephen played an extraordinarily important role in the evolution of the agreement to protect the ozone layer, mm -hmm. uh, which you've noted in the title, was called the Montreal Protocol from 1987. And we cite that very successful agreement uh, for what we think are some of the things that could be done better yeah. to accelerate yeah. action on climate change. Yeah, the, the 1987 Montreal Protocol was pivotal in my environmental education. Uh, I went, I started in environmental studies in college in 1992. And so, of course, uh, that was something that was sort of a hot example uh, at the time. Uh, and it, it was still too early to say whether it had, had been effective, uh, uh, but 
we've we've since learned indeed how effective it has been and we'll we'll talk more about that for sure um but this book was actually uh, sort of spurred on by a, a pollution study that must have come out a little over a year ago uh courtesy of the university of illinois right that shows that uh air in our in rural areas is not as clean as it was considered earlier you want to tell us about that study that spurred this well, actually, uh, Justin, there were a number of studies, including that one, um, all of which pointed to what turns out to be very substantial undercounting of certain pollutants, mm. um, including methane, which we can get into. But um, there's an issue that I actually have continued to work on somewhat separately, which is the issue of environmental justice. Yeah. And, you know, what we're now finding and only recently really starting to study in the ways that the University of Illinois did is to look in a much more, to use the academic favorite word, granular way <laughs> at um, the distribution of, for example, extreme temperatures. So, you know, you listen to the weather report, it's an average. Maybe right. it tells you what a suburb, but it turns out that even within a city, there can be significant differences in the extreme heat from within a small area, often low-income minority yeah. communities, from communities with a lot of trees and vegetation, et cetera, uh, not to mention swimming pools and air conditioning. And with air pollution as well, it turns out that there are some very significant differences in the distribution of, of pollutants that are um, very impactful in terms of the results for uh, climate change. Yes, and we certainly have that issue of the urban heat island effect and its disparate impacts on people of color right here in Louisville, Kentucky. In fact, some some researchers have suggested that our city has the fastest growing urban heat island in the country. Uh, and we know that, uh, yeah, it's, it's the most vulnerable populations that are most impacted by it. And we also have other environmental injustices in our rubber town area, uh, of, mm -hmm. of the, which is also in West Western Louisville, um, where I don't know that the concern is as much about particulate pollution, although we certainly have plenty of that with all of our highways, uh, but uh, the other air toxins. Um, so before we dive further into that, sort of the difference between, um, you know, rural and urban air quality, um, I, you know, your book is about super climate pollutants. And I want to understand what these are. Uh, can you can you highlight what some of these are that we should be worried about? Sure. So um, I'm sure in previous shows you've probably talked about carbon dioxide. Oh yeah, <laughs> that is the topic of the day when it comes to climate change and the burning of fossil fuels. And for sure, over coming decades, if we're going to deal with climate change, we have to reduce fossil fuels. That's, of course, a very current problem where, thanks to the high gas prices and reducing imports from Russia, we're now facing you know, record gas prices. And our concern has been more to produce more yeah. um, than it has been to, to, uh, to replace it with renewable energy. Although I will note, uh, as an aside, that even this year, with all the pressure for fossil fuels, it turns out that the projections are that this year will be a record for the additions of solar and wind power. 
So the wow. renewable, the the construction of renewable power is still growing and still on a pace to make a significant impact over the coming years. Yeah. There's two problems to talk about that we emphasize in the book. More than two, but I'll stick to two. Right <laughs> um, the first is that cutting carbon dioxide has only a very gradual impact on reducing warming. So your listeners may be aware of the targets that were in the Paris Agreement of 2015 to try to keep warming to no more than two degrees centigrade and preferably one and a half, which we're now rapidly approaching, by the way. Yeah. And the problem is that in order to stay within those temperature targets, you have to reduce carbon dioxide really rapidly. The metaphor that people often use is that it's kind of like we're filling up a bathtub and the drain is very slow. Mm. So because we keep adding more and the drain is so slow, the warming is not going down at all. And it will take um, really probably 20 to 30 years before the reductions in carbon dioxide have an effect. There's a secondary reason for that that um, gets a little bit into the weeds, but I do want to mention it. Please. And in the book, in the book, hopefully, you know, you have a very educated audience, Justin, I'm sure. <laughs> um, in the book, we do go into this in a little more depth. It's called the unmasking effect. And the issue is that, as we know from the reference to uh, fine particles, which you've met, you mentioned a couple minutes ago, when we burn especially coal, a lot of particulates are reduced, are emitted as well. And a lot of those particulates happen to be light colored and sulfates. Huh. And as it turns out that those light colored sulfates actually have a cooling effect. They're only in the atmosphere for a very short time. So as we reduce fossil fuels, the CO2 reductions are very gradual. The sulfate reductions are short term, but quite significant. So that adds to the net over the next 10 to 20 years that overall there will be little if any reduction in warming. It doesn't mean we shouldn't reduce CO2, yeah. <laughs> we have to. but it does mean that over this next critical period of 10 to 20 years, when we're trying to stay below two and preferably one and a half degrees centigrade warming, it's gonna be very difficult to do that just by reducing fossil fuels. Mm. The alternative it turns out is that there are a number of other sources of warming that we call super climate pollutants. Why do we call them super? First, because they're actually far more powerful mm. in warming than carbon dioxide. And critically, and second of all, several of them can be reduced relatively quickly, unlike carbon dioxide. So there are four of them that we talk about in the book. There are two that are of most interest from an American policy perspective. The first that I'll talk about 
is methane. And methane is what we normally think of as natural gas. So producing natural gas, shipping natural gas, pipelines of natural gas always have leaks. The mm. gas that comes into homes, we're finding out we haven't tracked it before. There are now a lot of research programs which are finding out, guess what? There's a lot of leakage coming to your house and in your house. When you add that all up, it's can be on the order of um, uh, over 20% of the current warming contribution in the United States. Wow. And even, and even more than that, globally. Just the now leakage. That, wow. It's, well, it's really several sources. The reason I like to talk about the leakage is because cleaning that up is economic. So yeah. we often hear, oh, dealing with climate change is going to be so expensive <laughs> the economy. Well, leaking natural gas is doesn't expensive. benefit anybody. Yeah. So the more we detect it, and there are a whole new generation of detection methods, which have only come into use in the last few years, hmm. including low-flying satellites. Oh. And these methods are allowing us to identify where these leaks are much more effectively, and in the process, create methods by which we can reduce them, thereby, you know, not having more gas to use, which is economic thing to do. Um, there are other significant sources of methane, especially when you look globally. One of them happens to be cow burps and farps. Yep, yep. And I love, uh, there's a wonderful series of Burger King commercials, actually, <laughs> in which they promote their vegetarian burger with a song about cow burps. <laughs> and uh, it's you can find it on YouTube if you want to see it sometime. And it also turns out that another major source of methane is food waste. Yeah. So when you simply put your food scraps into the garbage and it gets picked up in the trash, when it decomposes in a landfill, yep. it releases methane. Um, each of these is a different source and there are different things trying to be done. I know in Michigan, where I'm originally from, there are a number of landfills where you see them covered with little turbines now attached, which are sucking the gas from the landfill and using it to generate power. Um, there are a number of very large pork producers who are similarly creating um, biogas systems where they can uh, collect and then use that gas. So gas, whether it's from a cow or a pig or any livestock, it's still gas that can be used to generate uh, uh, power and heat people's homes. Well, I love I love what you're saying, Alan, about this, because it really points to the fact that this is why we can have sustainability now is because we are just so careless and wasteful yeah. right now that if we just cleaned that up, we would be miles ahead of where we are. And of course, it would help the environment 
and our future on this planet, but also our our economy right now if we stop being so wasteful. My guest today on the show is Alan Miller, co-author of the book Cut Clim- Super Climate Pollutants Now, the Ozone Treaty's Urgent Lessons for Speeding Up Climate Action. Uh, and it's part of the Resetting Our Future series. He's joining us in the virtual studio from the D.C. area today. And we're talking about some important steps that need to be taken in parallel to the march to get off of fossil fuels and to mitigate uh, CO2 uh, is these super climate pollutants. So methane is just one of them, right? It's just, it's just one. <laughs> and uh, the one other thing to say about it is that unlike CO2, which when emitted stays in the atmosphere for centuries, maybe you've talked about that. Methane has a Shorter atmospheric life. life of about 12 years. Oh, okay. So that means as we reduce the emissions of it, the benefits start to begin very yeah. rapidly. So if, again, I go back to that bathtub, yeah. the drain is much faster. So if we both cut the amount of methane going into the tub, and then we have that bigger drain, we're going to make a much bigger difference. So one of the things that my co-authors and I like to say is that probably methane reduction is our best short-term hope. And, um, uh, either now or later, I can just come back to the very significant development last year, which is the Methane Pledge, which is an international agreement that uh, Ambassador Kerry helped um, bring about in the run-up to the Glasgow climate meetings, oh, which okay. were the last, the last climate meetings in December. Mm-hmm. And there are now about 100 countries which have agreed, signed on to that, Although there are some majors like Russia and Australia that have yet to sign on. But um, uh, China actually has signed on. The U.S. has signed on. So that's a big part of the story on methane. Um, I was going to ask a a Louisville question. Oh, please. Is your community one of those that has any support for composting? Ha ha. Great question. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm part of the crew that is trying to continue to make urban composting a reality here. Uh, when I first moved to town, we had a nonprofit organization called Breaking New Grounds uh, that was funded by a local coffee shop, right, that had 13 different uh-huh. outlets and wanted to treat their coffee grounds responsibly. And so they helped fund this uh, urban composting operation, which could not sustain itself financially. Uh, a, f- a few years later, uh, the University of Louisville stepped in. We wanted to start composting too. We had a site where we could do it. Uh, we had a, a philosophy professor who happened to be involved in breaking new grounds and passionate about composting, and he has helped set us up. And that has spurned, uh, spawned off a, a Louisville compost co-op. So now, people yeah, for twenty dollars a month at a household or an apartment where you can't compost, you can. You can join the co-op and they'll come pick up once a week a bucket of compost for you. And we compost it at UofL and at some partner sites and give away the compost for free, actually. Uh, And it's a lot of student labor. We we try and make it an educational project. And it's a place where we can experiment with other sustainable solutions, too. Wow, Justin, that's terrific. Yeah. I I was teaching uh, uh, as an adjunct at American University, and they had a very 
similar program and it was working really well. I had a number of students who were participating in it and quite enthusiastic. Yeah. And um, to plug another book in the series, as you mentioned, Great. Resetting Our Future, a former colleague of mine named Stephanie Miller has also done a book in the series called Zero Waste, the 80-20 Way. Oh, uh, yeah. And, and the premise of the book is that if you want to eliminate 99% of your waste, you're going to have to live like a monk. <laughs> There are people who've done it, but yeah. you have to do some pretty extreme things. On the other hand, you can do about 80% with about 20% of the effort. Right. And among them that she talks about in the book is composting and the benefits of it and reducing food waste. And I think just this isn't so much part of my book, but I think one of the things that I was able to internalize from reading Stephanie's and you might want to put her on your show. Yes, I actually had her on the show about a year ago. Yes, and there's oh, no relation, I, right? A different Miller. No relation. <laughs> but, um, we did work together. We actually did. Oh, we, cool. Uh, we're friends, and we we did for a few years work together. But um, one of the things about things like composting is the personal satisfaction it gives you. Certainly, yeah. You know, and I, I have been a lawyer most of my career, and working on policy issues in Washington, D.C. and the like. And there's a certain level of professional satisfaction. But when I put that compost bin out there each week and I get that bag <laughs> of compost back every year, there's really a feeling of personal commitment yeah. and satisfaction. And I think especially for families with kids, and it's, it's really a different order of commitment and uh, understanding that comes. So, you know, it's one thing to talk about some of these remote things like a gas pipeline. Right, right. Not uh, so satisfying. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I will keep talking about it, but just to say <laughs> that some of your, uh, I hope in a future show, you will have Stephanie. She's terrific. That's a great suggestion. Um, so let me talk about the other major source of a super climate pollutant that we emphasize in our book. And that actually begins the transition to talking about that international agreement, the Montreal Protocol. Yeah. Um, that is uh, a refrigerant, interestingly, called hydrofluorocarbons, but it's much easier to talk about by its acronym, which is HFC. And ironically, HFCs were introduced as substitutes for. <laughs> CFCs. And you and I talked briefly about CFCs before the program and how we both had some knowledge of them in hairsprays back when you were in right. what elementary school. Right. Well, HFCs did not damage the ozone layer. The problem was, and this actually unfortunately was really known, but not acted upon back in the 80s and, and 90s. The HFCs are very potent greenhouse gases, 1,200 times carbon dioxide. Which, uh, let's be clear for our listeners, if they don't understand, this just is a molecular physics thing. It means that the molecule traps <laughs> that much more heat than a molecule of carbon dioxide, right? You got it. Yeah. And uh, um, yeah, I, I get carried away sometimes. No, you're good. I appreciate you. Um, <laughs> 
your professorial assistance on getting these things across. So um, one molecule of an HFC is how many more times? More 1,200. 1,200 more times the global warming potential yeah. of a carbon dioxide. So yeah. we gotta we got to manage both, but we see why getting a handle on HFCs then is so important. So what are these things used for? So they're, they're almost entirely used as refrigerants, meaning... They're in your refrigerator or in your air conditioner. So what's the problem? I mean, isn't that a closed loop? Well, the problem is several fold, but basically they leak. <laughs> ah, just like and, the methane. <laughs> and the other problem is disposal at the time, your old refrigerator or old air conditioner. And fortunately, there are a lot of programs and even some economic incentives and subsidies for picking up your old air conditioner and refrigerator yeah. and sucking out. Um, also, by the way, automobile air conditioners. Mm -hmm. And those, you can imagine, mostly were just, you know, leaking out. Yeah. Not, very, not very tight traditionally. Yeah. Partly because the refrigerant was so cheap. If you're, you know, those of us, even your age, Justin, probably had that experience. Your air conditioner in an older car wasn't working very well. You had to take it into the shop, have them pump back in more refrigerant. So you can imagine in developing countries where, especially as in, if you follow the news lately, India has had unbelievable heat waves. Mm, yeah. Partly due to climate change. Places where it is literally reaching the limits of human tolerance to be outside. Yeah. And at the same time, at least until COVID, there's been a fairly steady reduction in poverty and increase in income, which is allowing people the ability to do what? Among other things, one of the first things you can imagine if you're in a very hot location and you suddenly have some additional income, you're going to buy an air conditioner. Yeah. So it turns out that there has been a huge acceleration in the growth and the demand for air conditioning. And that is true to some extent in the United States as well, right? So last year we had this extraordinary heat wave in the Pacific Northwest mm -hmm. where people never needed an air conditioner. Right. Well, guess what? The first thing that happened is all the local appliance and stores sold out of air conditioners super fast. So, you know, people in Portland and Seattle suddenly were like, I need an air conditioner. So the importance became how do we replace the refrigerant with something that is not only ozone friendly, but climate friendly. And here's the catch. In doing so, in hopefully improving the energy efficiency, Ooh, right? Yeah. Because if we replace the refrigerant, but we do so in a way that makes it less energy efficient and the and it's in a part of the world like India, where they use a lot of coal or China, then you're actually just resulting in a net increase in CO2 emissions yeah. from the uh, power demand. So um, a couple of years ago, remarkably enough, the agreement that was successful protecting the ozone layer, and this is something we talk about, has created a culture of success that is very different, frankly, than the climate meetings. 
And I know both because I went to both. I uh -huh. went to climate, I went to 16 years worth of climate meetings. <laughs> I have to admit, in one sense, was kind of a great deal because it would move around the world. I went to Buenos Aires. I went to Bali. I went to, you know, all sorts of wonderful places in order to attend these meetings. That's where the Glasgow meetings were last December. And this coming December, they'll be in Cairo. I don't go anymore, by the way. <laughs> but the much, much smaller meetings around the Montreal Protocol, so they're both UN international agreements. They both are almost 100% uh, of all the countries in the world, 197 or so countries. Well, the parties to the Montreal Protocol said, you know what? We made this problem with HFCs. Mm. It was it was our doing. And they even helped fund the adoption of the HFCs. So they decided to adopt an amendment to restrict use of HFCs. They did so in a meeting in Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. And therefore, as these agreements tend to be, it's called the Kigali Amendment. Mm, yeah. The climate agreement we mostly talk about is the Paris Agreement. Right. The HFC Agreement is the Kigali Amendment. And the good thing is they decided that by 2030, the signatories, again, almost all the countries of the world, would commit to dramatically reducing their use of HFCs. And that means replacing the refrigerants and attempting to do so, we hope, with products which are more energy efficient at the same time. And are there such alternatives in existence today? Yeah, they're coming along. And in fact, here's the deal. In, as I mentioned, in a place, so while there, there are a lot of air conditioners being bought in the United States, not to diminish that fact, the, fa the really fast demand, growing in demand for air conditioners are in places like India, yeah. where it's very hot and hardly anybody has had an air conditioner. Even in China, there's a very high percentage of people who now do have air conditioning. And certainly in the U.S., if you lived in Phoenix or you lived in, uh, you know, Houston or Dallas, New Orleans, you were probably, and I imagine in your part of the world, Justin, you probably have, most people have air conditioning. Oh, yeah. Very unusual to not. So the issue has mainly been in places like India. And the, the problem in those places is you need some assistance because otherwise the low-income people are just going to buy the cheapest, least efficient air conditioner because that's what they can afford. Yeah. So there's a lot of effort right now on trying to find ways to help speed that process up. So the answer to your question is, it's happening, but we need to make it happen faster. And if we do, the remarkable conclusion that the um, researchers have found is that if, if we can do it in the next decade, if we can meet the goals of this amendment, we can avoid about half a degree centigrade of warming just from replacing the HFCs 
and improving the, the efficiency of the equipment. Wow. So it's a kind of bad news, good news in that we've got a problem, but we are, <laughs> you know, um, and, you know, we have so much partisanship now about climate change and it's, it's, it's really a bit sad to, you know, hear people talking about how in schools, in, in, um, you know, I don't know about in your state, but in, in some of the states now, they're literally saying, oh, climate change should be taught giving both sides. Both sides, yeah. <laughs> like, there's the truth and there's the fiction. I mean, it's, there's not. <laughs> it's so crazy. Indeed, indeed. Um, but there's also a lot of good things happening in the way of, investment and technology. And maybe to just take one more minute about this cooling issue and mention what I think is indicative of some of the ways that people with creative ideas are coming up with all kinds of solutions, whether they you know, can do it fast enough yeah. to avoid how fast climate change is changing is really gonna probably determine the fate of the planet, right? But here's an interesting one that is specific to cooling, since that's what we've been talking about. Sure. There's a, a non-governmental organization in Colorado. It used to be called the Rocky Mountain Institute. Oh, yeah. These days, people like to use acronyms, and so they, they condense their names. So now it's called RMI. But, of course, that's Rocky Mountain Institute. Yeah, yeah. But if you want to go to their website, it's RMI. Anyway, um, they came up with a very interesting program in cooperation with the government of India Environment Ministry. And it was called the Global Cooling Prize. And what it was, because it's now been finished, was a competition with companies and researchers, because probably in a place like your university, you probably have engineering oh, yeah. experts who oh, yeah. know a lot about cooling cycles, right? Yeah. And it's, and what it said, it's a wonderful website, has lots of videos and things. What it said was the competition would be for a method for a, a room air conditioner, very specific, you know, not trying to solve all the world's problems at once, but residential room air conditioners, the biggest single growth and demand in a place like India that would have a five-fold reduction in the warming impact of a room air conditioner relative to the best systems in use in the country. And that would include consideration of the HFCs as refrigerants and also the power demand. Uh-huh. And they said it had to be something that could be done within a commercially feasible price. In other words, if it's going to cost $100,000 per unit, that doesn't help. And it also has to be of a technology that can be commercially produced. So it, it can't be that, you know, one guy in a lab has to do it, right? And they had over a hundred technical applications and um, they had a panel of experts 
to evaluate all the applications. And they awarded two prizes last April to um, major companies with academic partners. Yep. And those awards were announced, ironically, about the same time Cut Super Climate Pollutants now was published in April of last year. And um, we have to see, but in theory, the whole premise of this prize was to give a few million dollars, not, you know, billions or anything, but a few million dollars and a lot of publicity. Yeah. And to have the support of the government of India so that there would be a receptive government ready to say, we will try through our authority, through regulations, through subsidies, through things like bulk procurement. Mm, yeah. You know, just as an example, can you imagine how many government buildings there are in India? <laughs> yeah, sure. Thousands. <laughs> so the government of India has had programs where they buy 10,000 air conditioners, get a low price, and insist that it be the most efficient Great. air conditioner wow. and then put them in these government offices. And that helps bring down the price, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I would just say again, I mean, this is another topic you could do a whole show about, but there's a lot of brilliant people who are trying to work on this. And fortunately, many who see a lot of profits to be made, right? Yeah, yeah. Making a super efficient air conditioner that governments and people want yeah and that will save users money is a real win-win it's um so those are the sort of things that give us hope and that we talk about in the book my guest today is author of the book co-author of cut super climate pollutants now alan miller joining us from the dc area and we are talking about sustainable cooling uh and other ways that we need to tackle the climate crisis in parallel to reducing our release of carbon dioxide so we talked about we've got 10 minutes left we've talked about methane and hfcs what about tropospheric ozone yeah there's actually four super pollutants that we talk about. And let me mention black carbon. Black so, carbon. Yes. I want to yeah. know more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and there, this is the reason our title is climate pollutants and not greenhouse gases is because black carbon is a form of particulate and not a gas. And earlier in our discussion, I talked about how in burning coal, you get a light colored particulate, which actually cools the atmosphere. Well, conversely, when you burn wood and charcoal, which is still done by millions sure. of people around the world who have no access to modern energy, no access to electricity, spend hours, you know, looking for wood and the rest, and then it's deforestation. Burning those fuels releases a dark-colored particulate, which, again, falls out of the atmosphere relatively quickly in a matter of days or weeks. But because it's black, it is contributing to warming. Yeah. It is from a modeling perspective and a science perspective, and I'm 
originally and still am a lawyer and policy person. I'm not a scientist, so I'll be very clear about that. And in our book, we referenced a lot of the science because yeah. we were nervous. People are going to say, you're not scientists. What do you know? <laughs> well, that's why the book has 80 pages of text and 80 pages of footnotes. <laughs> so we were extremely careful about this. But the point about the black carbon is it is very regional and it does not. Gases distribute themselves more or less evenly around at least the hemisphere, if not the whole globe. Yeah. In contrast, particles do not distribute all the way around the world, and their warming becomes much more localized yep. and regionally specific. So black carbon does contribute a lot to warming in places like India, and a lot of it goes up into the um, Arctic. Oh. And contributes to, we uh, know, the accelerated melting of sea ice and warming of the oceans. Can I ask Alan, too, about is 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 highway traffic a source of black carbon? Because I, I've read that most of the particulate pollution from traffic is actually tire and brake pad wear. Is that another source? Yeah. So transportation is usually referenced as the single largest source of carbon dioxide from the United States. Um, actually, methane on a 20-year basis is equal or greater than transportation, even oh, in the wow. United States. Oh, wow. But if you look at the EPA website, for example, they talk about methane as being 11%. That's because they compare it on 100 years. Huh. So methane is substantially less of a contributor over 100 years than it is over 20. So that gets off again into the weeds a bit, but it's a fairly significant fact from a policy perspective that if you wanna deal with warming over the next 20 years, methane is a much, much bigger factor than if you only look at the numbers as EPA has mostly done at its website for 100 years. So, yeah. But to come back to your question, with respect to transportation, um, there are a number of different issues with it. So it depends a lot on, for example, if you use ethanol, as we're now, thanks to the energy situation, we've licensed ethanol for the summer when we don't normally, because mm. it adds to pollution in the Midwest under when there's hotter temperatures. We're now going to allow ethanol. Ethanol is more greenhouse gas intensive, unfortunately, than gasoline. Um, so when you see 10% ethanol or whatever at your gas station, just know that's an additional factor from wow. your car. Um, the biggest factor from auto emissions is actually the fourth pollutant that you've just mentioned in our book, which is tropospheric ozone. And that actually confuses the heck out of people. And I know that from teaching. <laughs> Especially because, since we started off talking about protecting the ozone layer. This is a different. Exactly. Problem. People will say, wait a second. Do we want ozone or don't we want it? <laughs> it and depends on where it is, right? It depends on where it is. Because depending on the altitude of it, it's the good ozone or the bad ozone. <laughs> 
And the good ozone is very high in the atmosphere where it absorbs ultraviolet radiation. And that's where most ozone actually is. The vast majority, there's very, very small amount of ozone in the entire atmosphere. Um, I used to love the statistic that if you compressed all the ozone in the atmosphere to the surface of the earth, the good and the bad, it would be roughly the thickness of a quarter. Wow. Wow. So that's how little there is. However, the little there is, is extremely important right. in terms of the, its atmospheric effects. The tropospheric ozone, although there is much less of it, is concentrated and accumulates primarily as a consequence of um, automobile emissions. Methane also contributes and temperature. Needs so to be hot. it's yeah. it's a it's a bit of a soup. Yeah. Where and one of the reasons why historically Los Angeles particularly and frankly to this day does tend to have bad air pollution days more than almost any other city is number one it has a lot of cars <laughs> and it's very dependent on driving but number two equally important it's in a basin and the winds tend to blow the air up against the mountains and consequently the tropospheric ozone stays significantly longer creating these air pollution warning days that we're familiar with where you get the yellow red alerts and we call it smog right <laughs> we call it smog yeah yeah, yeah. but it does turn out that tropospheric ozone is also a greenhouse gas okay um but again it's complicated because it's more locally present and because again if we clean up the pollution we can reduce it very quickly this has been amazing we're very much at the end of our time alan but <laughs> i want to i, I want to end by saying that actually for a climate change interview, I'm coming away from this feeling a little more hopeful. And, and I guess that ties back into the lesson that we started out with talking about the Montreal Protocol, which helped save the ozone layer like that instructs us right now. Right. So if you could just take a minute and put a pin in that for us. Sure. And this is something we do go into um, at some length in the book. And my colleague and co-author Stephen Anderson really wrote much of that from his own personal involvement and experience. But basically, the Montreal Protocol was negotiated at a different time with different country participation and was able, through a, a bunch of reasons I, I, I won't have time to go into, but it was able to create a culture of cooperation yeah. that continues to this day. And just as an indication of what I'm talking about, if, if you go to a climate negotiation like the one in Glasgow or the next one in Cairo, there are many college students now who go. Oh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Universities sponsor students as a learning experience. Sustainability 101. You will typically be among 20,000 or more people. Wow. In, that, in contrast, when... I used to go to a Montreal Protocol meeting, there would be 
in the hundreds. Yeah. And there would be a lot of, they were able to create working groups of industry people who would be looking for solutions. Yeah. And they would, they would ask for very practical things. They would say, we can do something, but we're going to need five years. Yeah. Or we can do this in developing countries, but we're going to have to subsidize them to do it. And, and the parties would agree. They would say, fair okay. enough. Yeah. Yeah. We'll give you more time and we'll come up with a billion or two chump change in the world as we're now seeing <laughs> with Ukraine war, right? But a billion or two was big money in those days to help developing countries to make the transition. In contrast, the climate world became very large, never was able to create that culture of cooperation, has from the very beginning had parties from oil producing countries, from oil companies, who frankly, for a whole lot of obvious reasons, felt <laughs> that they were better off if no significant action happened. And, um, you know, another topic, if you haven't already explored, is this history of um, how much we knew and um, what the oil company, what, what the oil companies knew and when they right, knew it. Right, right, right. Um, a former, another former colleague of mine has done a book called They Knew. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> published by MIT Press. And it goes into the most incredible detail. It's about a 350-page book. It's more than you want to know, frankly. <laughs> but it just, it just hammers home yeah. that they knew. They knew. Mm-hmm. Well, that's. I'm sorry we're out of time. This has been so wonderful. Well, Alan Miller, thank you for taking the time. I encourage everyone to check out the book, Cut Super, Super Climate Pollutants Now, from the Resetting Our Future series. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I honor you for your important work in this realm, and, and thanks for uh, educating us about these super pollutants. Thank you, Justin, so much for... Uh, for taking me on your show. All right, stay tuned, everyone. Coming up in just a second, your community action calendar. Lots of ideas about how to get engaged in sustainability, so stay tuned. Down by the Take our time Down by the waterside Got no worries and no worries Down by the waterside Good Lord We gonna set them We're back here on Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogwell. Let's take a look at our calendar this week. So much to do to get engaged in sustainability. And it all starts Tuesday, June 21st at 7 p.m. with the Greater Louisville Sierra Club, a proud Ford Radio community partner in their monthly program on the state of the Salt River Basin. It's taking place online 7 to 8.30 p.m. on Tuesday. And they invite you to join. 
join them via Zoom when they will welcome Miss Perry Thomas presenting the State of the Salt River Basin. Her presentation will include an overview of the Kentucky Division of Water's Priority Watershed Selection Process, a brief tour of priority watersheds in the Salt River Basin, and an introduction of new tools that community groups can use to track local water quality. It's going to be awesome. You can find the link to register and join at sierraclub.org slash Kentucky. Now, coming up on Wednesday, June 22nd at 5 to 8.30 p.m., it's the next in the series of Zoning Matters, conversations with the city planter, planner taking place at rotating Louisville Free Public Library branches. On this Wednesday, June 22nd at 5 to 8.30, they're going to be out at the Iroquois branch of the public library. And again, these conversations are part of the ongoing Land Development Code Reform an equity-focused approach to revise the Land Development Code consistently with Plan 2040 to allow for increased housing choices and opportunities in new and existing neighborhoods to create procedures and regulations that are easier to use and increase the quality of life by reducing the concentration of environmental hazards near housing. Joel Dock from Louisville Metro's Office of Planning and Design Services will be available on Wednesday at Iroquois Library 5 to 8.30 p.m. to answer questions about zoning and discuss the ongoing Louisville Development Code Reform Project. They want to hear from you. You can learn more at louisvilleky.gov. Just search for Land Development Code Reform. And the series continues through September. Also coming up this week, there are many opportunities to volunteer with Trees Louisville, and you can learn more and sign up at treeslouisville.org slash volunteer. Or you can always contact their volunteer manager, Morgan Grubbs, at 502-208-9421 or morgan at treeslouisville.org to learn more. But this Thursday, June 23rd at 9.30 a.m., they need two to three volunteers to help prune 35 trees at Butler High School. Then on Saturday, June 25th, there'll be shifts from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. at the Health and Wellness Festival taking place behind Portland Avenue Church of Christ at 2500 Portland Avenue. You can help promote the Trees Louisville Residential Tree Program by having community members sign up as well as sharing information about Trees Louisville. And the opportunities continue with pruning at Wagner High School on the 28th at 9.30 a.m. and pruning out at Fern Creek High School on June 30th. Again, learn more and sign up at treeslouisville.org slash volunteer. Now, coming up this Friday, June 24th, from 1 to 4 p.m., the Organic Association of Kentucky is having a field day from arugula to zucchini, diversified organic production on a mid-sized market farm out at the, the amazing Rootbound Farm in Crestwood. Rootbound Farms, a certified organic farm in Oldham County, and they direct market organic pastured chicken, eggs, lamb, and veggies. Rootbound delights and opportunities that allow them to connect with their community, including a 700-member CSA program, nonprofit partnerships, local restaurants, and farmers markets. This field day will focus on multiple aspects of their vegetable production, including greenhouse, transplant, and field production, with over 30 different 
different crops in the ground in early summer, attendees will have the opportunity to view the different production systems that Rootbound utilizes for direct seeded and transplanted crops, including plastic culture and bare ground production, drip irrigation, transplant and cultivation equipment, and pest management strategies. We'll visit the pack shed and talk about post-harvest handling, storage, and marketing and distribution strategies. No farm visit is complete without visiting the animals as well. We'll explore how the chickens and sheep are rotated through the pastures to close the fertility loop on Rootbound Farm. You can learn more about the Friday 1 to 4 p.m. field day out at Rootbound Farm in Crestwood at oak-ky.org. And finally, coming up Saturday, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m., it's the next in the pop-up drop-off free recycling event for residents of Jefferson County. This month, taking place on June 25th at Doss High School, 7601 St. Andrews Church Road. And again, they are accepting up to three electronic items for recycling, metal and appliances, up to four passenger tires for recycling, household recyclables following your usual curbside rules, yard waste for for composting along with wooden pallets can be composted there uh, documents for shredding and recycling and proper disposal of expired prescription medications you can learn more at louisvilleky.gov recycling or just coming out this saturday the june 25th at doss high school on st andrews church road 10 a.m to 2 p.m and before we let you go i just want to remind you that the deadline is coming up to sign up for Solar over Louisville. At the end of 2021, the Louisville Sustainability Council and Metro Government announced a new partnership to launch this Solarize campaign called Solar Over Louisville. The program offers Louisville residents and property owners a discounted wholesale rate for installing solar panels. Solar Over Louisville has done the hard work of vetting a high-quality solar installer. Super important in this moment with many solar scammers coming to Kentucky offering all kinds of things they cannot fulfill and trying to rush you into a contract that you'll be stuck into well avoid all that sign up for solar over louisville by participating in the program you'll of course reduce your energy bills support local solar jobs combat climate change and reduce greenhouse gas emissions and join a community of neighbors going solar together if you're a property owner of any kind in anywhere in the greater louisville area including like five counties across the river in southern indiana and something like seven counties surrounding uh jefferson county you can register your interest in the program now through june 30th that's the deadline friends to learn more go to 100 lou.com slash 2040 that's the number one zero zero spelled out percent lou.com slash 2040 and that's all the time we have for today here on sustainability now i want to thank you so much for tuning in and i look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time my friends be well 